0: If you listened to our last episode, you know that Faye and I discovered that we both grew up wanting to be private detectives, Yeah. stealthy sleuths, gutsy gumshoes, dauntless dicks. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Since 2021 is shaping up to be marginally better than 2020, we were feeling frisky and wanted to celebrate with a lighter episode. We played around with a based-on-true-events narrative story, so this week we bring you an experimental episode in the style of early 20th century noir, sort of, (laughs) (laughs) so expect a lot of anachronism and inaccurately accented characters. (laughs) We hope you enjoy this departure from your regularly scheduled programming as we present you with... Death Party Theater! (laughs) Yeah,
1: so we wanted to cover mysterious death. (laughs) And what death is more mysterious than the great Edgar Allan Poe? (gasps) Since he wrote what is widely agreed to be the first murder mystery and detective story, mm-hmm, The mm-hmm. Murders in the Room Org, and also died very mysteriously. Ooh. Spoiler alert, his death is still considered unsolved to this very day. <gasps> Today, 172 years later. But hey, maybe we'll figure the whole thing out in the next hour or so. <laughs> and since it's small task. such a mysterious case... Yeah, we can handle it. I'm confident. Yeah, we're we're pretty f-ing smart. <laughs> 172 years is a fair amount of time for podcasts to cover the story. So, instead of just retelling what we know of the facts, we decided to do this episode as a sort of fan fiction account of the facts, more or less. Mm. If you're curious by the end, you can listen to pretty much any other podcast that covers Poe for a much more boring version of what we're about to tell you.
0: Ouch. <laughs> Burn. <laughs> we're gonna make a lot of podcasting friends. <laughs> Everybody. <hate you. laughs> uh, yeah, we were thinking about following you on Twitter, but. <laughs> <you> <laughs> <a-holes>. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect because all the podcasts I listen to pretty
1: much have done one oh. on Bo, and I
0: love all of them, so they're all going to be like, it's called a persona. <laughs> We're playing a role, a character. Yeah. Or in this case, a bunch of them. Yeah. nineteen Portly, 48. <laughs>
1: New York slash Oof. 18. What is it? 91? Uh <laughs>
0: I wrote
1: it down. 1849. 1849. Death Party! Good evening, folks. Thanks for joining us for this exciting episode of Death Party Theater. Ladies, escort your gentlemen from the room and tuck your fur babies into their cribs, for tonight's radio show is not for the faint of heart and requires keen attention and a wild stretch of the imagination. We will begin by introducing our cast of characters, and you're going to want to keep them all straight to get the full effect of the story. Allow me to introduce, for your listening pleasure, your heroes for tonight, as always, our favorite death-obsessed podcasters turned private investigators, Fay, who will be your narrator this evening which will be super confusing, because they will also sound like this. Do you suspect foul play? When she is speaking out loud. And her co-host, whose name is thus far top secret and won't be mentioned, making things even more mind-bendingly confusing, will sound like
0: this. Sure, fella, sure. We'll help you. Don't get hysterical now.
1: Except when she is playing the strange, mysterious stranger who arrives mysteriously in their office to ask a wild favor, which will sound like this.
0: I have come to request that you both look into a matter for me.
1: Or when she is playing a snotty train attendant, when she will sound like this. Just these six trunks then, ma'am? And when she is playing a gruff orderly who refuses to help our two heroes, when she will sound like this. He's volatile and melancholy. And when she is playing Mr. Joseph Walker, the man who finds Poe in bad shape outside a pub in Baltimore City, Maryland, when she will sound like this.
0: He was slumped over and by many assumed drunk, but his wits were still together enough to ask for the assistance of a friend. And
1: just to make sure you have no idea what the hell is going on when she's playing the doctor that tends to Edgar Allan Poe, Mr. Dr. Moran, she
0: will sound more or less like this. He came and went in fits of consciousness, repeatedly asking to what place he'd been brought between moments of clarity. Got it?
1: Great. Here we go. Hello, dear listeners. Join us for this week's broadcast, and tune your radio dials back. Back in time, in fact, to the practically prehistoric year
0: of 1849. We join the dames as a mysterious stranger enters the investigative Death Party HQ. He comes with an odd request. And for the heroic dames, their day is about to get odder. mysterious sir, <laughs> Most mysterious-est... <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that voice.
1: <laughs> the scene opens now on your dastardly duo of kooky and spooky danes hold up in a makeshift office comprised of a small city flat and the strangest wallpaper you ever seen layer upon layer of
0: trench coats literally coat the far wall top to bottom woolly winter trench coats see a sucker summer trench coats silky evening trench coats bejeweled gala trench coats, (laughs) the most... (laughs) What is this? And the most babelicious of all, beachwear trench coats. We'll leave those up to your wildest imagination, dear audience. The remaining three
1: walls of the flat are covered in a spider's web of colored string connecting black and white photos and newspaper article clippings. The whole mess held together with thumbtacks, hairpins, and wild theories. Through a troubling combination of synchronicity and half baked childhood aspirations, us two spontaneous private eyes have rented a private office in a CD and thus pocketbook friendly part of town where secrets flow as freely as bathtub absinthe, if you know who to ask. Yes. Uh, Footnote absinthe wasn't banned until 1912, so I don't know why it would have been made in a bathtub, but it sounded good, so. <laughs>
0: meh, meh. Not
1: important. Suck it. <laughs> A pale and mysterious figure hovers in the hallway outside our door, his silhouette blurred by the frosted glass panels upon
0: which his hand lettered, Death Party Detectives, specializing in mysterious mysteries and unsolved crimes that aren't too gross... for hire. He seems to hesitate, as if conflicted over his decision to approach the two
1: dames on the other side of the door. He enters the room after a polite knock.
0: I'm terribly sorry to trouble you both.
1: He begins politely.
0: I heard you were the ones to go to for matters of this nature. Your exploits in the museum skeleton ribcage heist have gotten a lot of attention in certain circles.
1: Circles, circles! A ah! ah! <laughs> shout shoutin' unison My back's against the wall, as if this small man has pulled out a Tommy and co-host is clinging to the ceiling lamp like a cat in the Christmas tree. He pauses as if second-guessing his choice of investigators after this unexpected reaction
0: from the pair of us. However, I seek your assistance with a matter of great importance to me personally.
1: He suddenly goes quiet, as if his thoughts are a bird that's flown the coop, and a troubled shadow passes across his distant gaze. The little fellow must have seen a few things. He doesn't seem to register the reaction solicited by casually mentioning <laughs> the most evil of all shapes. Oh. He <laughs> said that he noticed and then I said that he didn't yeah. notice. Whatever. Um He missed it all. You can edit that out later if you catch my drift. Uh, uh?
0: Yeah, yeah, sure, sure.
1: Now, I don't know about you, dear listeners, but I just can't stand to see a fine specimen such as this, troubled by the dark possibilities of a world gone sideways. Wow. He looks as if his life has kicked him in the gut more than once, and there's something about the way the light from the gas lamps glints off of his dark, beady eyes that makes me go hot under the collar and soft in the knees. I <laughs> imagine brushing a single tear from his cheek, as hollow and milky as a saucer put out for a stray kitten's dinner. But he's managing to hold back the waterworks for now. I shove my hands into the pockets of my current trench coat and wonder if we're working pro bono again. His tatted clothes speak volumes as to the skeletal nature of his
0: bank account, if you catch my drift. Sure, fella, sure. We'll help ya. Don't get hysterical now. Why don't you take a load off of those nice-looking getaway sticks and tell us what seems to be the trouble? Co-host may seem like a tough cookie, but she's a real
1: softie for a man who looks to be on the verge of inconsolable weeping. The little fellow looks around the room helplessly, unsure of where one is supposed to sit in a room void of all furniture, save a desk and a single chair covered in piles of newspaper clippings and thumbtacks, sharp side up. Can I offer you a glass? She's motioning to the crystal decanter of amber liquid on the desk.
0: No, I thank you ever so much, but I... He seems
1: to fight with his own pale lips before he can get on an answer.
0: I have a contrary relationship to the bottle, and I...
1: He trails off again before restarting as if prodded into speaking by one of those thumbtacks on the chair.
0: It isn't good for me or anyone. Thank you for your generosity. He seems disturbed, hovering near the
1: door like a cat waiting to bolt. So she drops the matter even though it's only soda pop. Suit yourself, buddy, I say, and pour myself a tall shot of room-temperature soda pop that's gone flat. And knock it back with a grimace before hurling the glass against the far wall with a crash. Co-host gives me a look flatter than the soda pop. Do you always gotta dispose your scotch glasses that way? I consider the
0: alternative for a moment.
1: This way, I don't have to wash them. I hate doing dishes.
0: I have come to request that you both look into a matter for me. I fear it may already be lost to the annals of history. There has been a terrible occurrence, and it is quite likely that it is already too late.
1: He seemed pale when he entered the room, but his appearance is even more sickly now. He seems almost transparent with grief about the tale he is about to relate.
0: There is a man who is in a desperate predicament. He's been thrown from his life's course by some unseemly events, and his very life is at stake. He is soon to marry and has had the fortune to secure an editing position which will afford him some money for your services if he may be permitted by circumstance to follow through on his endeavors. I feel at this moment that I am not altogether sure of his condition, and I am humbled to request assistance from you with no currency to put forward, but I hope to make amends should he be saved. That is if you can help in rescuing him from his current dilemma, and the thus far cruel mistress of his woeful life. I beseech you to make utmost haste to his side, where it is my understanding that he has been kept quite against his will. I believe him to be at the mercy of his captors after being stolen away from the future he was working endlessly to make for himself and those that he might care for. His life has been a miserable series of powerful blows. But this last, this last may be the final. You will find the details of his woeful tale and his whereabouts contained in this letter.
1: The weight of the knowledge contained in the envelope seems to crush his spirit before our very eyes. I size him up in wonder. I wouldn't venture to say that he was a tall fellow when he entered the room, but he seems smaller now, soggy with grief like something dragged up from the bottom of a dank and moldering well.
0: Say, uh, there there, fella. Why don't you have a seat? I'll grab you a stool from the closet. Co-host drags a wooden stool out
1: into the room after wrestling it out from boxes of teacups stacked in the closet. But by the time she turns back to where the new client has been agonizing, he has vanished. Co-host opens the door and peers out into the long, empty hallway. It's full of muffled echoes from the voices in other apartments, but nothing more.
0: Did you hear the door close? I didn't hear the door close. I never hear the door close. Say, he looked awful familiar, but I can't pull my finger on where I'd have seen him before. Did you catch the fellow's name? I shrug and open the handwritten
1: letter. Looks like we're headed to Baltimore City. As the train chugs into the station and clangs to a stop, your two favorite flatfoot dames step down onto the platform. host hands one of the attendants some bills and an address to deliver the pile of trunks being unloaded from the train car. Just these six trunks, then, ma'am? The attendant eyeballs us. He's holding his tongue, but the look on his stupid face twists at the corners as if to suggest that it seems like an awful lot of luggage for just us two broads. It was also the kind of face that could use a slap or two to straighten it out a bit. Oh, no, I says with a grin. Those are just the trench coats. There's more bags if you don't mind waiting. And don't call us ma'ams. We make our way across town to the location contained in the letter from our spooky little client. So this is where they're keeping him, huh? Co-host tilts her head and peers up at the ominous brick building that houses Washington College University Hospital in Baltimore City, Maryland. Didn't we have a case out here last year?
0: I frown at the building. I hate Brick. The kidnappings, yep, this was the place. Let's be done with this joint by sundown. It's a real ghost town when the body snatches come out, and we don't want to be the only fresh goods on the auction block, if you catch my drift.
1: Yeah, I don't know about yous, but I ain't keen on my fame and glory coming from Burke and here, splattering me across the pages of a medical journal. I laugh nervously. (laughs) Ha ha ha. (laughs) And... And head inside. Let's find our guy before he ends up on a dissecting table. He must be one unlucky stray to land in this awful place. Once inside the haunted hallways of this monstrosity of a building, we find an orderly who looks like she should know where the fellow we're here to see is. I checked the letter for a name. We're seeking a little lost lamb. We heard he was brought in a few days ago in bad shape and is being seen to by a Dr. John J. Moran. You know where we can find him? Without so much as a glance, the orderly remarks in a tone as flat as the desk she's parked at. The doctor is busy. She shoots us down with the speed and compassion of a gunslinger who turns and fires at five pieces when the other guys count to ten. We know he's busy, that's why we're here, on behalf of the patient, a Mr. E. Poe. The broad behind the desk looks down her nose at us through thick wire frames. Call me a genius but I suspect she's not the sort to make a thing easy on a person. She sighs, heavily.
0: (sighs) The doctor is busy. I'll tell you like I told the last guy who came in. No one is allowed to see the patient. He's volatile and melancholy. Leave a message and see yourselves
1: out of the building. The last guy. Co-host and I slowly nod our heads in unison Wondering who that was And why they aren't letting anyone see the patient Seems like a visit from a friend Might lift the spirits of a person with a case of the morbs Something doesn't seem right But one thing's for sure We're not getting that story out of this angry clam Her demeanor is as serious as a heart attack And her unyielding gaze is nearly as deadly Leave a message.
0: I'll leave you a message. Uh, Thank you so much for your help,
1: ma'am. Co-host interrupts me before I can sass us into the custody of the local bluecoats.
0: If I'm going to spend another night in the clink, it's going to be for demanding the right to vote or having a say over my own reproductive system. Not steaming the beans of this concrete pillar of inconvenience. Please let the doctor know we need to speak with him at his earliest availability. We can be reached at this address.
1: While co-host writes down the number of our boarding house,
0: I squint at the flinty bull
1: of a woman behind the counter. She's got legs as tall as redwoods. I wouldn't want to be at the business end of one getting booted from the building. We'd have to find another way to get to the doctor. And figuring out who would come to see our boy and been turned away wouldn't be an easy task either, since nobody sees nothing when there's nobody there to see. And when there's nobody to see nothing, who's to say there was something to see in the first place? If there weren't no one to see, how's a person to prove nothing didn't happen to nobody? But if it happened to somebody, now that might be another story. And with the likelihood of being turned into a meat popsicle for a medical class around these parts, nobody's hanging around Washington College after dark. The sun is low on the horizon, and shadows are growing longer and blending together as we kindly see ourselves out of the building. I couldn't say which one of us is the more superstitious of the pair, but we both sink a little lower into our trench coat collars when a large black bird bursts from somewhere hidden into existence and disappears into the growing dusk with raucous, almost human-like cries. Is that a good omen or a bad one? I wonder out loud, just to break the following silence that feels like all the world is holding its breath, waiting for us to comprehend something important, but beyond our understanding. Neither of us venture an answer. Lucky for your girls, Baltimore's a town with loose lips and even looser men. And it doesn't take long before we figure out where a sick lamb was found and by whom. A nice fellow named Joseph Walker is more than willing to give us details that our charming new nurse friend would not. He recounts to us how he stumbled across our wayward fellow.
0: I recognized him as the writer Edgar Poe immediately, though I must say he was rather the worse for wear, at Ryan's fourth ward poles in front of Gunners Hall, at that time both a pub and a polling station. He was slumped over and by many assumed drunk. But his wits were still together enough to ask for the assistance of a friend, a Dr. J.E. Snodgrass, whom I wrote, and who came out with haste.
1: The oddest bit, and perhaps the key to this whole strange tale, is that Mr. Walker details being baffled to have found our sickly fellow dressed in strange
0: and ill-fitting clothes. Cheap worn and clearly not his own, nor his style of dress at all. I know the fellow to sport a neckerchief and collar, and his suit most assuredly would have been of wool or similar, and black, always black. When I found him, he had on a hat of straw, and his clothing was thin and awful. It was most unlike him. Not even his shoes were his own, having been replaced with a pair very worn down at the heels. It had been a
1: busy night, as is always the case with establishments where drink can be found. And the polls had added to the commotion as folks came out to cast their votes for some local politician who, as is typical for that type, was complicating the picture and
0: giving me a headache. Coho speaks my thoughts out loud. Our guy ain't a nobody, being both a well-known writer and an editor. And he couldn't have been in that spot for too long without being spotted by someone who knew him, as happened with uh, Mr. Walker.
1: But if anyone had seen how or when he'd appeared there that night, nobody was talking. I wonder what our little fellow got himself mixed up with.
0: I heard cooping goes on in this town, but finding him in a weird getup like that and he was missing for a few days prior too, it's not unthinkable that someone grabbed him and wrapped him up. Made him vote for the wrong guy a couple of times to sway the vote. I heard they just throw
1: pig blood in folks' faces to do that around here. I grimace at the thought of what bad guys will do to change the odds in their favor.
0: Seems easier anyways. Yeah, I've heard of it happening once or twice. Seems like a waste of good blood.
1: After a long night, of playing connect the dots with half-baked theories, broken sleep, and broken scotch glasses. I throw on my second best trench coat, a black number with shiny buttons, to protect my favorite trench coat layered underneath, also a black number with shiny buttons, from pig's blood and the crisp morning air. Co-host looks like she lost a wrestling match with the bed sheets again. Clearly, neither of us slept well. So we head outside, eager to return to Washington University Hospital, where we hope to catch our doctor off guard, literally. As in, before nurse cold shoulders can squash our chances of speaking with him under her intimidating presence. As luck would have it, hanging around the hospital at dawn with a bunch of body snatches is a terrible way to find a doctor, but it works. And before long, we've found our Dr. Moran. The good news is, after being shown our letter, he's more than willing to talk. The bad news is, nothing he says adds up. And the patient is dead.
0: What? When? I'm awfully sorry to say, my dears, but you've just missed the poor soul. He passed, just this day passed, October the 7th, 1849. He came and went in fits of consciousness, repeatedly asking to what place he had been brought between moments of clarity. But he declined rapidly over the course of a few days and is sadly with us no more. As to the cause, I cannot say. That's awfully vague, Doc. You mean you can't say, or you won't say?
1: Surely a man of your expertise could narrow it down a little as to the cause. Do
0: you suspect foul play? Surely, yes. I, as the expert, could venture guesses to the nature of his ailment. The doc hesitates, and his face
1: goes blank for longer than it takes to make a witnessing person uncomfortable.
0: I could not say if he had been assaulted or poisoned, nor ill with some undetectable disease. Uh, perhaps one or more of his organs failed, or he'd had too much salt, or not enough. Though he was found outside of Gunnar's Hall after the first day that I cared for him, I determined that he was not under the influence of any kind of intoxicating drink. That much, I am sure of. So you could tell that he wasn't sick from the bottle? Indeed. He showed no signs of it, nor would he accept spirits to invigorate him. Being a sensitive soul, he implied that it would do him more harm than good, and that it was against his nature. Say, doctor, you can't rule out anything else? It could have been pretty much Anything, and you wouldn't be able to tell? It is 1849, my dears. Death comes in the form of consumption, a, a murder. Everything else must be congestion of the brain. Unless word some day comes forth of suspicious men that followed the dear poet and stripped him of his money and attire and seedy criminal den, then forcing him disoriented and alone out in the dark, drugged and vulnerable to the night air. Uh, My diagnosis, until then, is congestion of the brain.
1: The doctor is a strange bird, both frustratingly vague and oddly specific.
0: These suspicious men, you know anybody like that? Oh no, not I. Tis a theory only. I see.
1: I'll beg your pardon, kind doctor, but we're not trying to do your job. What is that again? Denying visitors to your patients while they lose their marbles in a room resembling a prison cell? So if it's all the same to you, we'll be the ones to come up with the wild theories around here. I say... He say anything
0: else? He said that his best friend would be the man who gave him a pistol that he might shoot his brains out. His final words were, Lord, help my poor soul. He say anything that would indicate what happened to him, maybe. Oh, no. Uh, He was confused and could not recall. He was in an awfully sour mood. As one might be when about to be dead. He he also mentioned that I took great care of him and was a great friend to him in the end. (laughs) I myself have the heart of a poet, and I believe we bonded over that, and that this was a great consolation to him. (laughs) co-host raises her
1: eyebrow like a little red flag and shoots me a look that would split the needle on a lie detector test right down the middle. Sure, Doc. Sounds like you two shared a real moment. Any other tiny little thing that might help us sort out what happened to the fella? Anything at all. Try to recall. Unless you maybe
0: wrote anything down? Not that I recall, no. Uh, Wrote something down? No, that is the totality of it. Uh, well, uh, there was just one more thing. He did repeatedly call out the name of Reynolds for hours before he died. I'm afraid I must excuse myself. Uh, my workday has begun, and I have patients who need my attention. As if we'd
1: choreographed it, Co-host and I both put our fingers to our temples and squeezed till we see stars. He seems the well-meaning sort. But something gives me the feeling that whatever patients are left in the building are better off without the attention of Dr. Moran. As we head back across town, we leave the doctor and the large brick hospital building in our wake. You think he's in on it? Co-host stares ahead, blankly. It doesn't take a genius to see she's upset about losing our fella, and any possibility of payment where he's still in good enough condition to fulfill his editing contract. On the flip side, there's more mystery here than either of us could have guessed at.
0: Not sure yet. The details he gave are odd. I don't think they exactly add up. You don't have to pass advanced algebra to do that math. Co-host considers the questionable information supplied by the doctor. I'm not ruling out the doctor playing a part in all this. Something nasty landed our guy in that hospital, but they could have done a better job of making sure he walked out again. Could have been a mugging that landed him there. This is a rough town. As likely as anything else, I guess. Dressed up nice around here, he might have attracted the wrong kind of
1: attention. He have any enemies we know about?
0: Everyone's got enemies.
1: Sarah Elmira Royster Shelton is a widow and was the bride-to-be for our now-deceased poet, according to a letter received by Poe's mother-in-law, Maria Clem. In it, Miss Royster Shelton had recently announced that she was ready to accept Miss Clem as her own mother-in-law and referred to Poe as the dearest object on earth to her. Imagine our surprise when we questioned her and she denied the whole thing. (sighs) Secrets don't stay secret for long in towns like this one. Whispers from shadowy alleyways drift in the direction of some brothers of Miss Royster Shelton who weren't real keen on the idea of their sister marrying a cash-strapped poet. And they're not the only ones. Apparently the late Mr. Alexander Shelton, the dear widow's dearly departed and loving husband that he was, was keen on the idea of his heartbroken widow dying alone, and made out his will to ensure that she would be financially taken care of to the tune of a cool hundred grand if she stayed single but significantly less if she ever
0: remarried. Gee whiz, can only imagine how much dough she'd have been worth with an intact time in. If the fellas in this town have anything to say about it, more experience is actually going to earn you less money. Fortunately, in 172 years, this isn't going to be an issue. Now, I may have flunked advanced algebra, but I can add. And two brothers
1: plus two offspring equals four people that stood to lose if these two lovebirds had managed to fly the coop and get hitched. And funny I should mention, because a wedding is exactly what was planned in less than two weeks' time, if you ask anyone but the bride-to-be. Whether she's protecting her offspring, her siblings, or her own good name, a dame so struck by Cupid's arrow denying any involvement with her recently deceased fiancé is harder to swallow than a glass of warm, flat soda pop. With a growing list of suspicious suspect-type characters and our poor Poe sailing off from Knight's Plutonian shore, we head back to our boarding house to collect our thoughts and our pocket change. With no one left to save from a looming fate, we've got no one left to pay an extended lodging fare neither. And as everyone around these parts knows, podcasts and mysteries don't exactly pay the bills. As bad luck would have it, though, by the time we get back to our boarding house, rent isn't an issue as a portion of the building has burned while we were out and we don't get a chance to overstay our welcome. It seems Poe
0: ain't the only one this town has it out for.
1: You think someone's trying to run us off?
0: Maybe we're getting too close for comfort. If they are, they got bad aim. That fire was nowhere near our room. Fortunately, that means our trench coats were spared. All the same, we can't stay here tonight. And we only have enough of the train ride back home, unless there's some doing our Patreon account.
1: Turns out Patreon don't pay when you never actually set it up. So with suspects and bills racing to outnumber each other, we cut the investigation short and board the first train back home. I can't say I'm going to miss this town, and I'm sure it's not going to miss us either. So we get out of Dodge quick before it can take a better shot. As our train lurches ahead, bursting through its own puffs of black smoke, and we watch Baltimore City grow smaller in the distance, I promise our lost poet that we're not giving up on him, and that we'll continue to look into his case. If we have to do it from a distance, so be it. Co-host looks at me and nods as if she can hear my thoughts. When you spend as much time together as we do, things like that tend to happen. I also realize I've been talking to myself out loud, so that could explain it too. Back at the office, we keep our word to our departed Poe and continue to look into his mysterious and tragic end. By now, his untimely death is public knowledge, being splashed across the pages of the daily paper. Only, the articles there don't add up with what we know about his final days in Baltimore City and what might have befell him there. The tale becomes even more twisted, the facts we've uncovered are obscured, and our gentle poet is put before the public as a crazed womanizer and a drunk. As the plot thickens, our investigation reveals the fact that his longtime enemy, a Mr. Rufus W. Griswold, managed to establish himself as the head of Poe's affairs upon his untimely death and is using it as a means to defame and smear our unfortunate poet across the pages of Harper's Monthly Magazine as swift as a viper and just as merciless. Now, whether Mr. Griswold has an agenda outside of being a petty, jealous liar who steals from and smears other writers for fame and fortune, it's hard to say. He avoids our inquiries and chooses to spout his toxic tales onto paper where nobody can argue the truth without the aid of a printing press. He's certainly not avoiding the spotlight, though, so if he's a killer, he's also a daredevil, an idiot, or both now breaking and entering is a crime and beneath the high moral ground that private investigators such as co-host and i stand on (laughs) but if we were say to know somebody who's unopposed to gaining entry to griswold's home in a cunning fashion and if the sole decorations found in that home were portraits of griswold himself poe and a miss Frances osgood that particular individual being a friend of both men and a writer who was known to exchange romantical-type poems with Poe and be much sought after by Griswold, well, that kind of knowledge might paint a very interesting picture indeed. Co-host adds Griswold's name to our list of suspects and draws a little cock and balls beside it.
0: I'm putting him on the list, but I don't think this toxic piece of garbage has the ovaries to offer, guy, says co-host with a sour look on a mug, like a cat that just licked milk that's gone bad. I remember him tearing other authors apart. And right in that aptly named publication, The Porcupine, I have a feeling the only assassination this jellyfish is capable of is a person's character. What a prick! We're gonna need a longer piece of paper soon.
1: Co host is staring at our list of suspects. I squint at it and wonder about the name Poe called out in his final hours Reynolds. Wasn't there a Reynolds tied up in that girl's murder from a while back? What was her name? The one Poe wrote about.
0: The mystery of Marie Roget. Her real name was Mary Rogers. Yeah, I believe that was right. That was what, uh, six years ago? Together we got a mind as sharp as a tack, holding webs of string and newspaper articles to the wall. Co-host crosses our office and stares into an older,
1: disconnected section of text, holding webs of string and newspaper articles to the wall. The first newspaper article describes a murdered shop girl found in the Hudson River. The second's about a wealthy shop owner, a Mr. John Anderson, suspected to have taken advantage of Miss Mary Rogers while she was under his employ, resulting in her fleeing his workplace and undesired attentions just before turning up strangled in a river. We follow the tangled web of woven strings connecting these articles down our office wall, where it alights on the short story written by none other than Poe himself, The Mystery of Marie Roget. A strikingly true-to-life tale, but one that blatantly leads the public opinion away from placing suspicion on the shop owner in the story, and pins the foul deed on a sailor who was passing through at the time. An unusually lazy ending if you consult the literary community. There's a more recent note scrawled in the margin of the papers, that John Anderson, the girl's employer in real life, is rumored to have paid Poe a handsome amount to write the story in a fashion as to draw people's attention away from himself. Who many believed had arranged the girl's murder, and that the two men had argued at dinner when discussing the story's republication and some interesting edits that the writer had added. People who know his character say that Poe wouldn't have written a cover-up story for a murderer. Then again, his little wife Virginia had one foot in the grave from consumption at the time, and he was strapped financially. Whether or not Poe knew the intentions of John Anderson when he was paid to write the story is anybody's guess, and unless he comes back as a disembodied spirit and wants to have a conversation, we've missed our chance to talk to him about it. The final article tying the whole mess of yarn together details Anderson fleeing once suspicions were on him about the shop girl's tragic fate and mentions another man who had been hired by the shop owner to disappear the girl. Maybe you heard the name before. Reynolds.
0: Poe wrote a lot of stories about men being ate up by guilt. Maybe he knew too much, but six years... That's a long time to wait for a murderer to tie up a loose end. What are the odds it's the same guy? I try to remember which stories were written after the mystery
1: of Marie Roget, and if they sounded particularly guilt-ridden. Coho stares out the window at a black cat sunning itself in front of a stoop like it owns the joint. The cat outside the window turns as its sixth sense alerts it to the presence of a cat person nearby
0: and looks up at her. It's missing an eye. Who is? The cat.
1: I didn't read that part. What? Co-host crosses the room to the desk where I'm sitting, cutting out an article about Poe's pet cat, discovered dead right around the same time that its owner gave up the ghost. Different cat. Does it say how it died? At the same time? That's... interesting. I can see the gears turning between Co-host's ears. She's working on a theory.
0: There was something in a statement by the doctor that Poe got a little better before worsening again. That plus the cat dying at almost the very same moment, that could be a symptom of, uh, Murder-suicide? Rabies?
1: Oh. The way this case is going, there's not much of anything we can rule out. You could tell me Poe was murdered by an orangutan with a straight razor, and I would say that was going to be my next guess. I write the word rabies with a question mark on the article about Edgar Allan Poe's cat and pin it to the wall. Write down
0: heartbreak too. Poe? The cat. Maybe it was heartbroken about its owner's death. Write down heartbreak until we can get a statement as to the cat's character. Maybe I'm a dog person, but the cats I've owned would sooner eat
1: my eyeballs than die of a broken heart if I'd have bought the farm before they did. I stare at the piece of paper pinned to the wall rabies question mark heartbreak parentheses cat we gotta get to the bottom of this thing with poe co-host is back at the window looking for the one-eyed cat he's gone now but as i turn the page of the paper my eyes lock on the article in front of me and my face freezes in confusion she's saying something else about the cat but i can't hear her over a high-pitched ringing in my ears i sweat a little suddenly feeling frozen in place as I read the now familiar title, Edgar Allan Poe, dead at 40 in Baltimore City, Maryland. But this time, there's a picture. I stare at the image contained within the article. It looks like a reprint of a daguerreotype. I check the name again. Edgar Allan Poe. I think co-host is still talking, but she's realized I'm fixated on something, and she comes to see what it is. As she gets close enough to make out the picture in the paper, She exclaims out loud. It's him! It is. I manage to squeak out, though my throat feels gripped by an icy, unseen hand. Who is he? Is there a name? She's not close enough yet to make out the writing in the article, or the name below the photograph that has me shook. But I can tell she hasn't put the
0: whole thing together yet. That's the guy who was in our office. We need to get in touch with him. I'd like to offer my condolences and thank him for seeking out our help, even though payment for our services didn't exactly pan out. By now he'll know we couldn't get to Baltimore in time to save his associate, Mr. Poe, but I expected another visit from him all the same. Maybe he has more information that could help us solve the case, and we could get a better understanding of... uh... Co-host
1: trails off and freezes in a tracks as she gets close enough to see the name of the figure in the
0: photograph. Edgar Allan Poe? But... That's the guy who was in our office.
1: It is, I answer without taking my eyes
0: off the page. But the article says uh, Edgar Allan Poe. It
1: is. My gaze drifts to the spot by the office door where this very figure beseeched us to solve the riddle of his own demise at an hour which preceded it, and was impossible for him to have appeared. By all accounts, he was at that very hour, on the opposite coast, drugged, ill, imprisoned, or all three. Any of those would be a difficult state to travel in to say the least. That's the guy who was in our office. It is. Slowly, Co-host and I turned to look at each other. But neither of us have an explanation that doesn't raise the hairs on the back of your neck. Wide-eyed, I inquire. Did we get visited by the ghost of Edgar Allan Poe? Co-host thinks it over and squints her eyes at me. Technically,
0: that'd be a wraith.
1: As this strange realization washes over us, time seems to slow down and fracture in a way that, if jet lag were a thing yet would be a perfect description of the sensation. It takes a minute before time speeds up again and we realize someone's been tapping softly on the outside of our door. What if it's him? Co-host pussyfoots across the room, avoiding that one squeaky floorboard so as to remain undetected, and stands by the door with a hand on the knob. Are you gonna open it? Shh! Co-host and I hold our breath until it comes again. A faint tapping from the other side of the door. All at once, she opens the door wide and jumps back with a preemptive and startled sound. We peer out into the hallway from whence the tapping sounds had been emanating, but no further sound nor anyone appears outside our office door. Darkness there and nothing more. <laughs>
0: And now on to another great mystery, dear listener. Have you enjoyed this episode enough to leave us a five-star rating and review? It sure would help ease our case of the morbs to know you think we're the cat's pajamas. You can follow us on Instagram at Death Party Podcast or Twitter at Death Party Pod for more spooky surprises. And if you want to be a real doll, help us build our audience by telling a friend about us. Until next time, dear listener until we're all wearing pine overcoats seems like a waste of good blood (laughs) that one (laughs)